0: So this morning, church, as we get started, if you haven't realized it, we're in fall. Yes, fall has begun. And and I just want to let everybody know that if you're looking for ways to connect, now's the time to get started. I know during summer a lot of things slow down, but this is the time really we have a chance to connect. If you didn't notice it, the ladies' coffee started on Saturday, once a month meeting, almost 30 women out there all ages. Small groups are starting up right now. We have small groups. We have we have 5 small groups. We're starting our first young adult small group today out at our house. And we also have Wednesday night discipleship. And and there's ways to connect in all of these. Obviously in small groups, a smaller group, a chance to connect through fellowship and prayer and time in the word, but even on Wednesday night. Like if you're like small group, I can't find a time that fits, Wednesday night, we have time before and especially after to connect. Honestly, on Wednesday night, I'm running people out of here at about quarter after eight. And we finish at quarter after seven. And I don't see that as a horrible thing because I love seeing everybody just having a chance to connect during the week. So there's connections times there. And if you're looking for a small group, you can't figure out which one to go to, talk to me, talk to Ryan, talk to one of the small group leaders, get a hold of us through the church email. We'd love to connect you with a group. And we also wanna give you permission. You can, vol- you can actually visit more than one group to figure out how it fits. So, so don't think you're making a commitment just by showing up the first time. So we just believe, we really believe that we need to be connected as church members. It's not enough for us to merely be intaking content every Sunday morning. We need each other more than we can ever imagine. And these are ways that we can actually have that connectivity together around the gospel of Jesus Christ. So turning now to the book of Acts. We're turning to a passage that not only records a significant develop in the early, development in the early church, and a passage that introduces us to some of the most significant people in the second half of the book of Acts. These short verses expose us to three ways that faithful Christians have a glorious impact on people both inside and outside the church faithful christians you just think about it up until this moment in the book of acts who has been the center of attention who's been leading the charge who's been doing almost all the work four people at least if we're just following the names right peter john stephen and philip that, that's who Luke's been telling us about, four people. In fact, if Luke had ended the book of Acts right after the inclusion of the Gentiles with Peter and Cornelius, if by chance he had just stopped there and said, hey, the gospel has gone to the Gentiles. That's what I wanted you to know. We might be tempted to think that God only uses rock stars. God only uses missionary professionals and ministry professionals to accomplish his work. We might be tempted to think that. But these verses expose us to the amazing way that God uses everyday Christians. And really, that's, that's often our biggest problem in the Christian life to begin with. We feel ordinary. We don't feel extraordinary. We don't feel like we have a lot to offer. And yet we see people just like that being used in amazing ways in our text today. And the first way is that we see is that we see that God is advancing the mission of his church through, faithful, through the faithful witness of everyday Christians. He's advancing his mission. And how's he doing it? Through the, just the faithful witness of everyday Christians. So let's go to verses 19 through 21 to begin with. Now, those who were scattered because of the persecution that rose over Stephen. Now let's just stop there for a second. No, notice he's kind of cycling back. We've gone all the way forward to Peter, and we've gone up to Cornelius. We've gone up to that. He's kind of, he's bringing us all the way back again to the event that happened back with Stephen. And he's kind of resetting the storyline for something that's happening. Now, to begin, if we're going to fully grasp what's going on in these verses, we need to begin with a little bit of geography, a little bit of geography. In fact, we got some geography on the screen for you this morning, so you can actually kind of track, because I I, I know talking to most people, they're like, I don't, when you start talking Bible geography, I get lost, and I realize there's some small text up there, we're going to have to work with it, but notice, which direction are these people fleeing from Jerusalem after Stephen's murder? Jerusalem's at the bottom of the map, Antioch is at the top of the map, they're fleeing north, In fact, the distance from Jerusalem to Antioch is roughly 300 miles. That's no small distance. And if we look at this map close enough, we could actually recognize the gospel's advance through the past 11 chapters in Acts. Let's just talk through this. What happens right after Stephen's murder we have people fleeing they flee to where samaria samaria the gospels proclaimed in samaria primarily by philip we see a revival we see a church planted in samaria that's on the way north from judea they, they fled past joppa and caesarea on the coast of the mediterranean you see those little words out there in the in the sea that's joppa and caesarea they, they've they've gone past that that's part of our storyline just last week they also fled past the northern boundaries of Israel. So they're fleeing out of Israel, past Galilee in the north, to, through the region of Phoenicia to Damascus. And we know Damascus is also part of our story because that's where Paul, Saul at the time, was chasing the Christians. He was going to go track them down, capture them, and haul them back to Jerusalem for trial. Well, that is until Jesus stopped him on the road to Damascus. That happened in Phoenicia. But they didn't just stop in Damascus. Some of them fled all the way to Antioch, 300 miles to the north, to a city with the third largest population in the Roman Empire, second to only Rome and Alexandria. That, that's Antioch. Population, half a million people. At the time, this is going on. We're talking about a city that's the size of Minneapolis, Minnesota, Colorado Springs, Colorado, Miami, Florida, or Mesa, Arizona. That is the size of Antioch. That's the population. So, what we see here is that this account is happening in a city. It's no backwater town, it's a prominent center, number one, of, of pagan idolatry. We don't even have time to go through that this morning. And it's also a central hub in the spice trade with easy access to both the Silk Road and the Royal Road. Important place. See, see, in many ways, Antioch is the gateway to the most important cities and countries of the ancient world, whether that be Athens, Rome, or heading all the way out to China in the Far East. And as we will see very soon, This city of Antioch is going to become the primary launching ground for the gospel into the Gentile world. Prominent location. So, turning to the people, in this very exodus and migration to the north, we witness something about the people of God. What's going on? Is is that we, we witness the glorious impact that they have on the people around them? Notice Luke, again, he's not following the rock stars of evangelism. He's focusing on the way that ordinary, even persecuted believers, are actively spreading the gospel. That's his point. These people are running out, fearing for their lives, trying to get away from Paul. And what do they do? They're sharing the gospel news with Jews and the Gentiles. God's people are carrying out God's mission to God's world. Everyday Christians. One group of believers, according to Luke, actively sharing with other Jews because they've come out of Jerusalem. That's been the pattern in Jerusalem, is primarily sharing with the Jews. But then we're told another group of believers, these people from the island of Cyprus and the North African region of Cyrene, start doing something that was unthinkable before the account of Cornelius and Peter last week. They start sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ with people who are not ethnic Jews. In fact, this is a tipping point really in the book of Acts. But but, let me stop here and pick up on, on a small point that we need to address in the text before we go on. Notice I said they're talking to people who are not ethnic Jews. Now, depending on the version you have this morning, your Bible most likely says it's going to say Hellenists or it's going to say Greeks for who they're talking to. If you have the NIV or the New American Standard, it's going to say Greeks in verse 20. And at that point, you're probably with me like, okay, Mark, they're talking to people who aren't Jews. Check, let's move on. But... But if you have the ESV, which I normally preach from, or the New King James, it actually says the Hellenists. And if you've been with us this entire series, you know back in chapter 6, when we ran across the Hellenists, the widows who weren't getting the food that they needed, we made an explicit point that those were not... Gentiles, but those were Jews who had grown up outside of Israel, who came back, they were speaking Greek as their language, and they followed some aspects of Greek culture. So they were Jews who kind of followed Greek culture. That was the Hellenists in chapter six. So which is it? Is, is, is Luke telling us that they're talking to Jews who spoke Greek, or they're talking to actual Gentiles? Well, let me give you the overly simplified answer. Instead of taking the next 30 minutes, number one, Luke is using two different words between chapter 6 and here in chapter 11. Two different words. One talking about the Jews, one here talking about this group right now that we'll simply term as the Hellenists. And he's using this word, which is only used one time in the New Testament, he's using it in a very similar but different way to Acts chapter 6. Whereas in Jerusalem, he used the term Hellenist to describe Jews who spoke Greek and abided by aspects of Greek culture. He's using it here to talk about Gentiles from every ethnic background, every nationality, every different language, original language, who were speaking Greek. Because as we know, Greek was the primary language of the day, regardless of your background. So he's saying... They're talking to all these various gentiles whose primary language was Greek. So that's that's who they're talking to here. They're not they're, they're talking to gentiles of every nationality who are speaking Greek. And he says that because he has to distinguish some way from natural born Greek citizens who already speak Greek. So what was the result? What's the result of this evangelistic effort? God blessed it by bringing a great number of people to saving faith in Jesus Christ. Idol-worshipping Gentiles who had never probably even considered God come to saving faith in Jesus Christ. And I want you to see this. This This is very important for our first point. God uses everyday Christians to advance his gospel mission in the world. How does God advance the gospel most often in the world? It's not just through pastors like me or big name superstar evangelists. It's through you. God advances his mission through you. And while this might seem incredibly intimidating or beyond your skill set, and, and we talked about it this last Wednesday in our, in our new series on, on, on personal evangelism in this book we're going through, one-to-one Bible reading. It's just a way to figure out how to do evangelism another way. What, what, what's a reminder in this passage that we talked about this last Wednesday night is that the ultimate result of our evangelism is not dependent on our own abilities, it's not ultimately dependent on us. It's not ultimately dependent on how perfectly we can articulate the gospel. It's dependent on our willingness to actually share the gospel and to trust in God to do his supernatural work. Because the work that happens, the, the, the people that come to saving faith in this text, it says are a result of God's active work, blessing their gospel sharing. But this glorious blessing presented the church in Antioch with a pressing need. It, it, it presented them with a pressing need. These Gentiles were not like Cornelius. They hadn't been worshiping God for who knows how long. They hadn't been reading Old Testament. They hadn't been going to synagogue. They didn't, they didn't know really much about who this God was, how his plan had worked in the world. They needed to be discipled in the most basic elements of their newfound Christian faith. They needed to be discipled. Maybe that defines how you were when you first came to faith in Christ. Some of us grew up in the church. I did. Some of you didn't. And you were starting at ground zero. That's where these people are starting. So let's pick this up now in verse 22. The report came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. So as we come to the section, what I want you to see is this, this, I think this principle that's coming out of here is that Christian maturity requires a cadre, it requires a team of faithful gospel servants, it requires a team. In fact, we see this even as we get started, we, we look at the church's response in Jerusalem, Do you just think up until this point when we come to Jerusalem and something happens and they need to send somebody, who do they send? Peter or John? That's the only people we've seen them send out, Peter and John. But they don't. They they don't send out Peter and John. They don't send out one of the other apostles. They send out this dude named Barnabas. It's like, wait, wait, what? What, are the apostles not doing the job that Jesus has given them? They, they send somebody else? But I think in this we're seeing something. That the apostles realize that they need to hand over significant leadership responsibilities to other leaders around them. It's not for theirs just to hold on to with white knuckle grip and say, this is ours. They're handing over significant leadership responsibilities to leaders who had a consistent record of faithful service in the local church. Because they realized they realized that Christian maturity requires a team of faithful gospel servants. If we are really going to fulfill Jesus' mission, we need we need we need to be multiplying leaders who are also leading the discipling efforts of those who are in our churches and out on the front lines. So speaking of Barnabas, you might be wondering, how can I say that this is a faithful man? Well, let's ask the questions. What do we know about Barnabas from the book of Acts up until this point? What have we learned about Barnabas? Well, do you remember when we first ran into Barnabas? Think back. When did we first run into Barnabas? We actually ran into Barnabas right before Ananias and Sapphira. In fact, there's a comparison between the proper way to give and the wrong way to give, Barnabas, Ananias, and Sapphira, right? Acts chapter four, verse 36, then Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. This guy had a nickname. A Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. So coming right out of the gate, what do we know about this guy? We know that this man cares deeply about his fellow Christians. He has some property. He sees the needs in the church. And he says, how can I hold on to that with that? I need to sell that to help meet the needs of my fellow church members. And he does it. The other thing that we know about Barnabas, again, is that nickname. Evidently, his lifestyle and his character was so consistent and so manifest that they didn't call him Mr. Grumpy Pants. No. They called him Son of Encouragement. What oozed out of this man? Encouragement. Encouragement. If you wanted to be around somebody in the church, who did you want to be around? Barnabas. Whether you were going through the hardest time or the best time, whatever you were doing, you wanted to be around this guy. Son of encouragement. We we even see it play out when when he all of a sudden unexpectedly rejoins the story in in, in the account where Saul comes to Jerusalem and he wants to join with the disciples. In Acts 9, starting in verse 26, Paul has just got saved and he comes to Jerusalem. Speaking of Paul, and when he came to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples and they were all afraid of him and they didn't believe he was a disciple the entire church the apostles they're running for the hills they don't trust him verse 27 but Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road Paul had seen the Lord who spoke to him and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of the Lord that's Barnabas That's Barnabas. And in all of this, what do we see? We see that Barnabas is a faithful, compassionate, bridge-building peacemaker. He's not looking to find fault. He's not looking to find a a place where he can just drive a wedge of discord. No, no, he is a bridge-builder. He is a peacemaker. Therefore, it shouldn't be very surprising that, that of all the believers in the church in Jerusalem, that the apostles decided to send Barnabas to investigate and also consolidate the first multi-ethnic church in the history of Christianity. Because that's what we have going on in Antioch. The first multi-ethnic church. We've seen Gentiles come to saving faith, but we have not yet seen a multi-ethnic church. But here it is. And interestingly, Peter doesn't go but Barnabas. But I think it's because Barnabas has this kind of track record of bringing parties together who normally would not be together. So, as we turn to his initial ministry, it's easy to see that this is the perfect man for the job. He's the perfect man. Despite the fact that Barnabas is an official representative from the church in Jerusalem. Like like if you want to get a big head really quick, be sent as the official representative of something, right? To another place to make sure of orders are, are everything's in order, right? In fact, in the day that this is going on, when when ever-traveling philosophers or especially religious leaders of some sort entered into a city for the first time, they did everything in their power to emphasize their importance and to impress the audience and everyone in the city with their rhetorical brilliance and their knowledge. They came in. They were somebody. They needed to prove it so they could have a position of authority and power in the city. Yet Barnabas does nothing of the sort... He does nothing of the sort. He, he, he doesn't make a big sh- show of, of himself. He doesn't make a big show of his status. Rather, he, he focuses his full attention on the gospel fruit in Antioch. When he comes, he came to investigate the church. He wants to know what's going on. He wants to know is their faith really real? He doesn't care about what people think about him. Is it real? Is, is, is this real? Have these people come to true saving faith in Jesus Christ? Have they believed the gospel for the true gospel? Has it really happened? That's the first thing that he cares about. And what does it tell us? He saw the grace of God. That means he saw that these people were truly believers. They're not like Simon the Magician, They're true believers. He recognized the conversions of Jews and Greeks to faith in Christ. He realized the effect of God's grace in their lives and he knew, he knew it was really happening. He knew that God was working in an amazing way and how does he respond to that? He's he's, he's glad. Just seeing God work This man begins to overflow in joy of what God is doing. Does it just make you overflow with happiness and delight to see God work? He's always working. But he's overflowing with joy at the work of God that he had no part in. Yet in all of this joy, we need to also highlight something. The situation in Antioch was far from perfect. Far from perfect in Antioch. I mean, I mean, if we read the text closely, he has to exhort these new converts to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. Like, like, like he comes in, Be true to the Lord with all your hearts. Remain, remain, remain. And what does it do? It exposes us to the fact that these Gentiles were still struggling to grasp the sweeping moral and ethical implications of their newfound identity in Christ. They're still struggling to grasp the the singular devotion that Jesus demands as Lord. They're, They're struggling to grasp it. And 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 I think this comes out even clearer in the fact that the tense of the Greek verb here exhort is in a tense that highlights the fact that this is an ongoing, continuing activity. He didn't show up, he didn't celebrate, and then just say, Hey, keep going. You got it. No. Actually, what the text tells us is that his entire early ministry up there is he's challenging them and he's exhorting them and he's pressing in and he's saying, stay faithful, stay true, stay persevering for the Lord Jesus Christ. This is what it means to be a Christian. You don't just make a profession of faith in Jesus Christ and leave it behind to go do everything else in your life. You don't say a little prayer and think that's enough to get you to heaven. He's calling them to perseverance and he's calling, it to, calling them to it over and over and over again and it makes sense. God can work in miraculous ways in the salvation of people but they're still impacted by their background that they grew up in. Let's just think of these people. We're talking about a group of pagans that had lived in a religious world where an individual could worship multiple gods and and change gods to meet meet the needs of the moment. It wasn't a big deal to add another god, but you cannot just add Jesus to your pantheon of gods. He is Lord, and there are no other gods. They lived in a moral and ethical world where the strong preyed on the weak, Where vengeance was the word of the day, where forgiveness was not something that only the weak extended. They lived in a world where sexual immorality was celebrated as the highest personal joy and right. And that's a world that they lived in. And they lived in a in a relational world that was marked by deep seated patterns of racial bigotry and prejudice. It's a world they lived in. And they came to faith in Christ. All of these streams are playing now into how do I live my Christian life? What does it mean to be a believer? How does my old life and my new life come together? What does Jesus demand? What does it mean to walk in obedience to Jesus Christ? And Barnabas, time and time and time again, is exhorting them in their newfound faith. He's discipling them. Yet here's the key. For everything that we can see in the text here, Barnabas doesn't focus on the countless imperfections in this church in Antioch. He, he, he didn't really focus on their immaturity. He didn't really focus on their lack of understanding. He didn't simply focus on their struggle with past sin. Because if he did, I can guarantee you what would happen because I've been there. You fall into deep personal discouragement and despair of everything that's going wrong. You look around and you see where things aren't, where they ought to be. And instead of highlighting the place where God is working, we can fall in the deepest despair believing that God isn't working at all. No, what does he do? He focuses on what he's actually seen. He's seen the amazing and infinitely undeserved grace of God at work in these formerly ignorant Gentile believers. That's why he has joy. That's why he's celebrating. And that's why he's working with them to disciple them and push them in their faith without falling to frustration and anger at their immaturity and their sin and their failings that they're still struggling with. We need to remember, conversion is messy. Conversion is always messy because you're taking whatever their life was before Christ and now they've come to faith in Christ, and, and, and now every individual, and some of you know exactly what I'm talking about here depending on when you came to faith in Christ. It takes time to work through all of it, to figure out how does this submit to, how do I submit all of this to Jesus Christ? What does he truly say about these areas of sin? Well, how about these areas of obedience? It takes time and it's messy, and that's why discipleship is so important. That's why we don't want to just see people come get saved and then just slap them in the pews. We want to see them grow. That's why we provide various avenues of discipleship in our church. And what's the result of this work that Barnabas is doing? Verse 24, And a great many people were added to the Lord. Even more people come to faith in Jesus Christ. Now let me point out something in this development that's easy to overlook in this really short text. The text does not tell us that Barnabas began an evangelistic campaign in Antioch like Philip did in Samaria. It's clear Philip is out preaching open air. He's drawing big crowds. People are coming to saving faith in Jesus Christ. And for everything that we can see in the text, we're told that Barnabas is focusing his ministry on believers primarily. And he's challenging them to remain faithful to the Lord with a steadfast purpose. And what's the result of him challenging these people to grow in their faith? What's the result of him discipling them? More and more people are coming to faith in Jesus Christ. Now I take this to mean that these conversions are not primarily the product of Barnabas's evangelism but the continuing and expanding evangelism of the everyday Christians in Antioch. He's spurring them on and they're continuing to do, the original ones continuing to do and the new Christians are now taking on what the original ones were doing and they are sharing it as well. Because everything we see here is that Barnabas is discipling and equipping these believers for both their spiritual maturity and their mission in Jesus Christ. And these are, these are people who've been Christians for weeks or months. They're not saying, well, I need, I need 10 more years of discipleship at church before I can share Jesus with my friend. <laughs> They're sharing Jesus weeks, days after they get saved. And it's just neat to see that this, the pattern of organic evangelism is not replaced here in Antioch by professional evangelism. Rather, the training and discipleship ministry of Barnabas seems to be fueling and expanding the pre-existing evangelistic efforts in these everyday disciples. And God does an amazing work. not because these people were apostles, not because they had been with Jesus, not because they had seen miracles, but God is working through their faithful proclamation of the gospel. Yet as we go forward in the text, this very development reminds us why. Once again, the church in Jerusalem chose Barnabas in the first place. When we read this text, Barnabas doesn't try to solidify or defend his position of power. Because if you think about it, who better at this very moment could be raised up by the church as indispensable and the most important person in the church in Antioch? It's Barnabas. He's brought them together, Jews and Gentiles. He's been equipping them and discipling them. More people are coming to faith in Jesus Christ. He literally could be the Peter of Antioch. But what does he do? He looks around and he appears to recognize his personal limitations and his inadequacies. And let's be, I mean, I'll be I, mean, I mean, every single one of your leaders here at this church, especially me, has limitations and, 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 and inadequacies. There's just some things I can't do well. There's limitations I have, first one being time, right? We all have those, and he recognizes it. He, he recognizes I don't have the time, enough time in the day to address the magnitude of the need. At the same time, I think that what we also see here and how his partnership works with with Saul is is that I think Barnabas realizes that he doesn't have maybe the depth of knowledge that he really needs to disciple Gentiles who don't have a clue about the Old Testament in what the Old Testament's about. I mean, he knows a lot, but he, he needs something more. And who's the first guy that comes to his mind? Saul. Saul, who's hanging out in Tarsus. We don't even know what Saul's doing at the time. But he goes and gets this guy who at once was the greatest threat to the church who then brought great confusion to the church in Jerusalem when he showed up. And I think still, there's probably some people who are still wondering about him. And we find he's up in Tarsus. For whatever reason, he's up there. There's there's scholars have some various ideas. And he tracks him down and says, there's one person I need right now. And it's Saul, the man who's trained at Gamaliel's feet as a Pharisee, been grounded in the Old Testament in a way that few other people have to leverage all of that knowledge for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And in doing so, these two men Disciple this multi-ethnic church and consolidate it into truly one body. The, mo- the most amazing thing in the early church, especially as we read through the epistles and we see the difficulties that happened between Jews and Gentiles. I mean, this, this is a truly amazing event. And as a result of this, something unexpected happens in in this multi-ethnic trading city where almost every person i mean in the roman empire like everybody's often identified by their ethnicity or their nationality or their citizenship that that's 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 their primary way that they're identified this diverse group of believers now Jews and Gentiles begins to receive a new identity in fact, scholars would tell us most likely they've been given this identity by the people in the city. Most likely they didn't choose it for themselves, but it was given to them. A people who are no longer defined as Jews or Greeks or Romans or Africans, but a singular nickname, one omni-ethnic identity that's defined Jesus' people ever since, and that is Christians. Christians. Where, where did the term Christian first come from? It came from Antioch. It came from the ministry of Paul and Barnabas. It came in a multi ethnic city, in a multi ethnic church, where people on the outside looked in and said, This is something different, and the only way we can define it is by, call, is by identifying the one thing that unites them, and that's Jesus Christ. That's what holds this group of people together. That is their identity. Therefore, that is their new name. They're Christians. As Ephesians 4, Paul puts it, a people united into one body by one spirit with one hope in one Lord who hold to one faith and one baptism and worship one God and Father who is over all and in all and through all. Christians. That's what unites them. Their commonality in Christ. That's what unites us as a church here at Olympic. Our commonality in Jesus Christ, nothing else. And we, and we see this newfound identity and their growing maturity displayed at the very end of this section. In, in a few short verses that are easy to overlook I mean, at the very end of this, I'll bet you're wondering, like, why are we reading about Agabus? Like, who cares, right? Well, it's because these final verses actually actually bring us to a pinnacle in the spiritual maturity and growth of this church in Antioch. And it helps us see that the health of a church is revealed in its concern for other Christians, starting in verse 27. We won't spend a whole lot of time here. Now, in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, One of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples remained, everyone according to his ability, to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. Now there's things we know and we don't know in this text. So let's begin with a few things we don't totally know. To be honest, we don't know why this group of prophets decided to come to Antioch. We don't know why. Where were they just visiting? Were they on their way through? Was there a prophet convention somewhere? I I don't know. Had Agabus already received his vision of the imminent famine that was coming to the Roman world? We don't know if he had already received it before he showed up. And at the same time, we don't even know if Agabus appealed directly to the church in Antioch for help or if the church in Antioch merely heard the prophecy and spontaneously responded. Things we don't know. Things we do know. From Roman history, we absolutely know that there were a number of famines during the reign of Claudius from 41, who reigned from 41 to 54 AD. We also know that the the historian Josephus tells us that there was a very severe famine in Judea in 46 AD. So so we we know that there's famines that have happened in this time. We know of a severe one in Judea during a similar time. So as far as 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 reality of famine, we know. The second thing that we know in this text is is it something just bubbles up out of this church in Antioch a kind of kind of compassion and and selflessness that only comes through the gospel of Jesus Christ And in this giving, in them deciding to give, each according to their ability to help with the needs in Jerusalem, we see at least two things that reveal real maturity and spiritual health in this church in Antioch. In fact, I think this is one of the things we're supposed to be seeing here, because what did we see in the early church in Jerusalem? In fact, it happened when Barnabas shows up on the scene. The church is selling their personal goods to meet the needs of fellow church members in the church. People are needy. People have things and they say, I love my brother and sister in Christ. I want to help out with their need. And we see it a number of times referenced in the church in Jerusalem. So what happens here when this church in Antioch is presented with a need not inside the church but outside the church? They respond in the very same way. We're supposed to see a correlation between what the early church did in Jerusalem and what Antioch is doing for the church in Jerusalem. They're merely doing what churches are supposed to do. This is, this, is, this is evidence that they're actually, truly walking in obedience and they're growing in their maturity in Jesus Christ. It's evidence. It shows it. it it's, it's a mirror. The second thing is, it shows the maturity in that their giving is not motivated by their ethnic or national identities. This isn't a Jewish church giving to another Jewish church. This isn't a, a Gentile church giving to another Gentile church. It, no, it, it, it's, a, it's a mixed church and a multi-ethnic church giving to mostly and expressly Jewish church in Jerusalem. And they're doing it because they have a commonality in Jesus Christ. They have a heartfelt concern for their physical needs. This church that was known as Christians in Antioch because of their commonality in Jesus Christ also realizes that they have a commonality with their fellow Christians who have not even been called that yet in Jerusalem. They're one in Christ. And they want to be a part of the solution. As Christ himself said, by this the world will know that you're my disciples, that you love one another. And it's interesting that we see that love flow financially first from the Gentile to the Jewish world, not the Jewish to the Gentile world. That says a lot. So let's bring some things to a close this morning. As you see, we we have a number of different themes we could lean on as we close. I'd like to focus on just one. I want to focus on just one and just begin by asking a question How do you typically respond to the deficiencies and needs of our ever imperfect church? How do you typically respond to the deficiencies and needs of our ever imperfect church? Because we are ever imperfect. We'll never be perfect until Jesus comes, but by God's grace we'll be we'll be growing the question, so, so how do you respond? Are you prone to see the grace of God for everything that he's doing today in our church and to be glad and celebrate and encourage the good things that he's doing both broadly in our church and in the individual lives of Christians? Even though we still have a number of needs, are you prone to look and see the good things that he is doing? We have a God who's never who who doesn't stop working. He's working in people's lives. There there's always multiple reasons to celebrate and be glad in our church. Or are you the person that's prone to look at those per- imperfections and the immaturity of fellow Christians in our church, and turn away in frustration and anger and disgust, and just just be like, I realize that's the two ends of the spectrum, and that your your response might land in between those. But how do you typically respond? Where does your heart go? And be honest, where does it go? because i think the ministry of barnabas points us to two positive responses i think it points us to two positive responses one it's always right and proper to honestly assess our strengths and weaknesses as a church it's always right it's always proper we we need to know where we're at we need to we want to see what god is doing if we're blind to that we're going to lose hope really quick but we also need to honestly grasp our weaknesses as a church The the key that we see in Barnabas here is that he doesn't blindly focus on only the good or only the bad. And same with us. We can't only highlight the things that make us frustrated and angry all the time and ignoring the things that God is doing. We need to be a church that sees and celebrates and individual Christians that see and celebrate the countless ways that God is actively working in our church and in our church members today because he is. He's working. And at the same time, we need to actively consider how we can address the discipleship needs in our congregation so that we can continue maturing as Christians we want both. We need both. We, we can't just celebrate good and, and, and hope that it'll overcome the things that need to be addressed. No. How, how does Barnabas address them? He addresses them through discipleship and engagement. The second thing we see, we need to recognize the truth that healthy, growing, Christ-exalting churches require at least two things. And that is continual discipleship. Our bread and butter daily teaching ministries, continual discipleship. We need it. We can't stop. We can't get to a place where we think we've attained it. We need to be looking at the various ways we need to equip where we're weak. I mean, one of the reasons why we're actually doing this course on evangelism with our adult discipleship on Wednesday night. But the second thing we also need is we need an ever expanding team of faithful gospel servants to serve at every level of church life. We need other people. We need both. We we, we can't just always look to other people to accomplish the things that need to be done. And and, and let me just say, like, I am just so thankful for everyone who stepped up in, the, in this past months getting ready for fall. I mean, I'm just so encouraged. Leaders leading our small group efforts. Leaders who've stepped up to staff. Wednesday night discipleship. I mean, I mean by our own requirements, by the state and by our insurance, we need extra people that maybe we wouldn't have needed 20 years ago just to hold classes. We need more than one person. We need all sorts of things. You're there, you're serving Our little kids all the way through our adults. Right now we have people upstairs serving in children's church. So we have some parents who can have some margin to listen to the sermon for just 45 minutes or whatever I've gone. They need it. They need the time. And also those kids need some time to be discipled. We need those babies to be taken care of as we talked before the service. And, and I, I just want to let you know that, that, yes, I do get discouraged at times about needs in our church because I care. But as I do, I also am greatly encouraged by the faithful service that we are seeing today. I am encouraged. And I would just want to, like, thank you. Yet at the same time, as a challenge, we do have important needs in our church. Like, like needs, not just wants. We have ministry needs that are currently struggling to be filled or absolutely unfulfilled. We have needs. And I know from 25 years in ministry that everyone has a never-ending list of reasons not to serve right now or why you think you might be able to serve three years from now but not now. But we need to see, we need to see that there's something really beautiful when ordinary, faithful Christians step in and serve in their church and are sharing the gospel outside their church. There's something beautiful that happens. We see the gifts that God has given his people actively at work. We see people being able, to, being able to lead in areas that we never thought somebody could lead. And we see people growing in ways that they've never grown in their life before. See, the reality is, is that you, Christian, are more important to the health of our church and you are more important to the mission of God in the world than you could ever imagine. You are. And we see that in that this group of nobodies fleeing persecution planted the most beautiful church in the most unexpected location. Let's close in a word of prayer.